hunger is actually just people who are constantly riding the glycemic response curve and they're constantly spiking and, and dropping their blood sugar. Mm -hmm. And so they're getting low, low blood sugars. They're getting insulin spikes. Insulin makes you hungry. Yeah. So if you're constantly pulsing insulin throughout the day with sugar, you're getting hungrier because you're eating food that is making you hungrier, right? right? And on top of that, we get thousands of messages of food all day long to eat. And that activates the um, dopaminergic systems in our brain, the hedonism pathways, the pleasure pathways, right. the wanting and the liking of food. And that can make you think you're hungry, even though you're really just, you just want the food or you just like the way food tastes. Right. And this is why when you're eating, eating a multi-course meal, um, you're, e you're able to easily eat more food because of different foods tasting good continues to activate that pathway. And so it's not that you actually necessarily have room for all this food. It's that it's a novel experience. Novelty factor, yeah. Right? Hey friends, welcome to this week's episode of The Human Podcast. This is your host, Jeffrey Wu. I had another great conversation this week with my good friend, Dr. Molly Malouf, who's not only the head of medical science at Sano Intelligence, a continuous glucose monitoring startup, but also a private doctor for prominent folks in Silicon Valley. After our last conversation with Molly in episode 55, about half a year ago, she began to experiment with intermittent fasting. We touch upon a number of aspects of fasting, its effects on the gut microbiome, the feeling of empowerment one gains over food as the body gets adapted to fasting, and Molly's N equals one fasting experiences and experiments as a woman. This is a great discussion that elucidates the frequently asked question, how does the effects of fasting differ between men and women? Hope you all enjoy this episode as much as we did recording it. Let's get started. Great to have you back, Dr. Molly. Thanks. So that's weird to call you Dr. Molly, but I know. <laughs> but no, you earned your medical degree there. It's true. So yeah. last time you were on the show was five months ago, and a lot has happened since then. I know that you were just starting at Sana at the time, the mm -hmm. continuous glucose monitoring company, and obviously a lot has happened yeah. since these last five months for you guys. A lot has happened for us at Human, where our ketone esters finally now launch the world. I know you've been experimenting with that, so we've got to talk about that. Yeah. And I know you've also been traveling a lot. So what's new? What have you been up to? Oh my gosh. So I think around five months ago, I was just kind of getting interested in fasting and still was quite skeptical, but also very curious. And as I've been doing just so much research in continuous glucose monitoring and glucose metabolism, I had this hypothesis that, okay, maybe if I fast, it'll lower my fasting glucose. Because over the last year, I had changed my nutrition and I'd lowered my postprandial glucose, so after meal glucose, mm -hmm. pretty dramatically. And I dropped my hemoglobin C a whole point from like 5.6 to 4.6. But I still had like and a. This was just through diet? Through diet. Okay. But I hadn't really implemented fasting yet. And I was really curious about it. And I wanted to see what would happen to my fasting glucose if I started fasting. And I was thinking, okay, first principles. It would make sense that if you would fast, that your fasting glucose would just go down. Like, why wouldn't it go down? And over the last two months, I started using the app Zero, and I've been sort of chronicling it on my Instagram and going from intermittent fasting. I mean, first, what I did was I did a month on keto, which I didn't really feel awesome on that month. However, I did get really well fat adapted. Hmm. So that made doing intermittent fasting a lot easier for me. And then from intermittent fasting for a couple of weeks, I went into like a full 24 hour fast. And then I went into like 36 hours, then 48 hours, then 52, then Whoa. 63, then 72. Okay. And it just got easier. The more I fasted, the easier it got. 
I became um, better friends with one of your investors, Phil Libin, who basically like brainwashed me into believing <laughs> that fasting would change my life. And I actually totally believe him now because in a lot of ways, I think, you know, after doing, I mean, I read um, Jason Fung's book, The Ultimate Guide to Fasting. I'm such a fangirl of him at this point. He's just like such a hero. I'm trying to get him to advise Sano. I actually need you to send an intro to me for him. <laughs> but um, yeah, so fasting has like sort of came from a challenge of wanting to see what would happen, what would happen to my fasting glucose. And not surprisingly, it's gone down pretty dramatically. But where did it start? Where are you it was now? hovering around like 89 or so. Okay. And now I've gotten it down to like 80s, like early 80s. So nice. like today I'd eaten a bunch of food for breakfast and it was still only 83. Okay. And I was like, that's weird. I mean, it was pretty low carb, but still like I had enough carbs in the breakfast for it to have gotten higher. So I actually think my metabolism has been changing yeah, pretty. I mean, like your glucose control is really, really good. It's gotten really good. Yeah. And it's also just kind of amazing how by doing continuous glucose monitoring and then also doing ketone monitoring and also doing um, finger prick monitoring, I'm starting to be able to predict what my blood sugar is. And I kind of know like, oh, this is what it feels like to be like 50 yeah. and also have ketones, you know. Right. I've been doing tons of experimentation with different types of fasts and different types of fasting aids. And then just doing research on what's the science behind what would be the best type of fast for different goals. And so I'm working on my own sort of like succinct version of the complete guide to fasting and really like what's scientifically backed for different lengths of fasts. And yeah, I'm kind of like a full on fasting cult convert. <laughs> I think that's actually a good point that you bring up. There's, these like broad rules around a 16, eight or a 36 hour fast. Yeah. But you should really take into the context what your goals are mm -hmm. and what your initial body composition is. Oh, 100% right? like, agree with that. Like my fasting protocol has really changed since I'm marathon training. Yeah. Right? Like I'm doing a lot shorter fast because I'm exercising a lot more. Yeah. Because you don't want to get too low body fat. Right. And I mean, this is something that a lot of people need to think about, especially women in particular, because yeah. we are not the same as men. And I've been combing through the literature I've been trying to find research on female hormones and fasting yeah. and I'm coming up with very little information on this because it just doesn't exist. Like if it, if it existed, I would be able to find it and I'm not, I'm finding a little bit of data. I'm I finding some animal some data. data on Ramadan. And, yeah. And, and yeah. Women. But the thing about Ramadan it's not fasting like, it's not the extended fast. is that Ramadan fasting a is mostly isocaloric. Most people are, and that mean, meaning that most people are eating the same amount of calories. They're right. just eating them at night. Yeah. They're not drinking water. And most of the time, it seems to not affect metabolism that much. You seem like, it's kind of like a null meta metabolic effect, which is interesting because I haven't seen many, many studies showing any harm from Ramadan fasting, right. but I also haven't seen a lot of improvements in health. Right. Because you're kind of having like a 12, 14 hour fasting window it's like not you're, a you're super also long just fast. eating at night and there's really yeah. a lot of evidence suggesting that circadian rhythms um actually do we're kind of programmed to put on fat and weight if we eat at night on yeah. purpose right because like if you think about evolutionary biology it would make sense that if you spent your day hunting and then you spent your evening maybe either if you had fire cooking and, and eating the food and not eating very much of it like any type of any type of food you had at night like you were probably trying to store that because you knew that you didn't know what your next meal was going to yeah. be. So there's some great research coming out on circadian rhythms. And I just don't think that like I, that Ramadan fasting necessarily is good or bad. I think it's a religious practice. But my own personal experiences with hormones um, and for keto in particular, while I was doing that month on keto, I was doing a urine hormone menstrual rhythm test. Okay. 
where I was doing multiple urine samples throughout the course of a month to track my hormones. Yeah. And then just to be clear, like what was your macros on the keto? I was eating less than 25 grams of carbs okay. a day, net carb, net carbs. Yeah. And I was testing for ketosis Okay. and I was pretty much in ketosis most of the month. Okay. So like above 1.0 millimole. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It wasn't nearly as high as fasting ketosis I would get into, right. but it was, it was still generally hovering above. So you're legit, legitimately eating keto. Yeah. Okay. And this was the part, like the first time I actually tracked everything and like measured everything. And I wasn't at a major calorie deficit. So I wasn't necessarily losing weight this month. Right. I lost a little bit of water weight, but, but I was pretty surprised at like how my estrogen and progesterone levels went lower. Hmm. So I started thinking a lot about what is ketosis telling your body? And really it seems like ketosis is telling your body that you're in a famine because Typically, when our ancestors were exposed to fat metabolism, it was when they didn't have access to food, right? Right, Or you were Eskimos, right? So you were like eating fat to stay alive. And it seems like, to me, my hypothesis is that when you send those signals to your body as a woman, you're kind of saying, hey, resources need not go to fertility. Right. You should probably be trying to stay alive right yeah. now. And so survival, I think, will always trump fertility. And if your body thinks it's in a uh, survival mode, then it would make sense for you to have an effect on your hormones. Now, at the same That's time, interesting. Yeah. I do believe that there are a lot of women who have insulin resistance and have tried keto ketogenic diets and have actually improved their ovarian health because they've reduced the insulin resistance and, and overall improved their body's metabolism. So again, it's like, where are you beginning in terms of your metabolic health and where do you have to go? Right. So like, I am starting out with like a fairly well-toned metabolism and then you put it into ketosis and then you put it into fasting and now like i'm actually really curious to know like how my hormones are going to change because of this and i'm also just curious to know what's the best schedule for me because eventually i do want to have kids right but you know i do like feeling leaner in the summer i don't mind feeling a little bit softer in the winter because it's hibernation mode right yeah but i think we need to start doing large-scale studies on human metabolism and fasting to understand what's the best dose for everyone because yeah. like we know that too much food is bad for people. Right. <laughs> and I know that like I have a family history of Alzheimer's disease, of cancer, of what else? Rheumatoid arthritis, hypercholesterolemia, and hypertension. And guess what? What you, what you don't have. Fasting improves all of those things. Yeah. Like I have a list of like 40 different things that fasting does for your body. And those are pretty amazing things that can happen from just reducing food intake. So I mean, those are the diseases that are the top 10 killers, right? Like heart disease, Alzheimer's, yeah. cancer. Like those, these, those like these are, and then rheumatoid arthritis, like I already have celiac, right? So I already have one autoimmune disease and it's really common for people with autoimmunity to have more than one. Right. And so like, if I can actually improve my immune system through fasting, like this is going to be part of my life now. Yeah. Like question is how much for what dose to keep my hormones healthy, to right. keep What's my the body balance, weight. Right? Like you don't go in starvation mode and like fast for seven days and like just drop all your hormones, right? Yeah, exactly. Like what's that balance? Exactly. And like, well, so this is the coolest thing that's happened to me. I, before starting fasting, was not able to eat dairy easily, huh. right? So I go to Israel recently and you, you asked earlier about yeah. where I've been traveling. I go to Israel and I go to Lebanon and I'm eating foods out there and I've been fasting on the way there. I fasted during every plane trip I took on this trip. I, I took a, a plane, I took a flight over there and then I went to Israel for a few days for like a week. And then I took a flight to Cyprus, fasted, um, went to Lebanon, still fasted. And then on the way back through Iceland on a layover, I was fasting. So I fasted about four or five days on this whole trip okay. out of two weeks. 
And the funniest thing is, is that I'm in Israel and I'm kind of like, not necessarily letting myself go because I'm actually eating healthy, but there's a lot of dairy in their food there. And I don't normally eat dairy, but I ate dairy in Israel and I was just like totally tolerating it with no digestive complaints Mm. at all. So I started learning about how fasting affects your- Lactose intolerance. Well, I just started learning about how it modulates the microbiome. Uh, So fasting, a lot of this is preliminary animal studies, but there's evidence to suggest that fasting actually improves the health of your microbiome in a pretty significant way. And first of all, you're not exposing your gut to food for for a while. So it's giving some time to heal if you have any problems. Second of all- um, You're probably reducing processed carbs, which fosters a certain form of microbiome bacteria that's not necessarily optimal. Yeah. I mean, like I think everyone would benefit from just like not eating as much sugar and refined carbs. But at the same time, like I read this study in Sal recently that it was either cell or nature, but basically they took two sets of animals. One, they gave ad libitum feeding, so whatever they wanted. And the other one, they basically fasted every other day. And then they took another group of mice that were bred without a microbiome. And they transplanted the microbiomes of both groups into two sets of these new mice. And they found that the same clinical endpoints, the same reductions in cardiovascular endpoints like hypertension, like um, high cholesterol, like glucose metabolism abnormalities, they found the same effects in the mice with the transplants Mm. that were the every other day fasted mice. And then the mice that were eating whatever they wanted, which had the worsened endpoints, they had high cholesterol, they had gained weight, that all these bad things had happened to them. The mice that got those microbiomes had the exact same thing happen to them. So one of the big questions that's coming from all this to me is like, are we going to be able to develop therapeutics based on the microbiomes of people who are fasting that we can just give to people through pills and maybe give them the benefits of fasting without having to actually do the fast. That's interesting. I mean, I think there's probably so many targets of how fasting works, right? Like I think it affects microbiome, obviously it affects autophagy. Right. There's something with just the core metabolism, but like that's an interesting endpoint of fasting, changing microbiome. And this reminds me of a conversation I've had recently with a friend, Josiah Zaina, who literally fecal transplanted himself. Oh, so with he, who? With who's poop? So he he uh, had a friend with like apparently really good GI and he had, he's been struggling with GI issues through his life yeah. and he literally like purified the poop of his friend. How did he do that? Kept, what did he do to it? I think he just like capsulized them. Oh, I think gotcha. he literally yeah, yeah. swallowed yeah, this yeah. guy's feces. No, this is the thing. Like I, I he, actually like, have- out his gut. Yeah. Wait, did he take antibiotics? Yeah, he took full antibiotics Whoa. that destroy his entire gut microbiome Whoa. and then transplanted it and said like it matched. So he successfully matched. His and then what happened afterwards? He said he felt like his GI is great. That's amazing. So this the craziest thing about this whole <laughs> world of microbiome transplants is yeah. what's really depressing about it is that it's actually incredibly hard and very challenging to get a microbiome transplant from a doctor. Yeah. Like I it's I spent a year for one of my clients trying to get her a microbiome transplant. And finally, we got it done. But it yeah, took what, us, what, how, what you is have it? to contact, first of all, you have to have like a team of doctors. Okay. You have to have a poop sample from a lab that's allowed. You have to clinically contact a lab that ha- collects poop samples, essentially. And you have to call, like, basically develop a relationship with them to get that sample sent to the doctors who will then insert it through colonoscopy. Mm. Um, if you have Crohn's disease, there's arguments of like which way you would want to get it right. inserted. And so in this patient's case, they wanted to do it through the colonoscopy, mostly because that's the only way the insurance would pay for it. Like they wouldn't pay for it any other way. So she had to go to the hospital, be sedated and have this inserted into her. And it, to me, it's just like, really did it like, why 
why would it have to take that much time and effort? Like yeah. if this is something that somebody can just do at home, you know? Well, I, I would know. say that Joe's a, he's a pretty experienced biohacker, but yeah, yeah I mean, it sounds I mean, like there are risks for sure. You yeah. need to get your, you need to get like, well, we actually tested her partner's stool and cause we wanted to see like, maybe it would be easiest just to get it from him. Right. He had the exact same makeup as she did mm. because they lived together. Right. Makes sense. Which is so fascinating as well. Probably similar diet. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. One so, thing that I thought was interesting was that you were basically doing a pilot study on yourself of how fasting affects female hormones, right? Yeah. So I'm actually curious when I was looking into this. Oh, I this, have more information on this, by well, the way. <laughs> well, I think it's an interesting topic and I think it's an important topic because most of the fasting studies are done as mm-hmm. you're referencing. And I don't think just for fasting, just most clinical studies are done on men, period. Yeah, yeah. And like American Western men, period. Just because like there's less variables and they're, I don't know, for whatever reason, just an easier population to sample from. Yeah. Or recruit well, from. I don't, I don't, and I think hopefully in the future we can affect that and, and have a more diverse population from which to run clinical trials. But that's a different conversation to be had. Sure. But I think one thing that was interesting was that there is some confusion around women and fasting. And like, how much does urine hormone levels correlate to blood serum levels of sure. hormones? I, I imagine there's obviously some I correlation. Mean, they're, they're, I, I, so I moved to urine hormone testing for convenience mostly. Yeah. And also because I really like this company called Precision, Hormo- Precision okay. Hormones. Most functional doctors that I really trust are using Precision Hormones or ZRT Labs to do really convenient home urine okay. testing yeah. and hormone testing. And so they correlate pretty well. Okay. And the key is, is like, do you trust the company? Are they giving you information that's actionable? And like, do, is there good customer service in case right. you have questions? And right. so- I still do blood testing because it's the standard. Yeah. But then on top of that, for the it's really hard to do blood testing for their menstrual rhythm. And right. so because of that, it's just easier to pee on a piece of paper and dry it and to send yeah. it in. Yeah. But I think they correlate very well. Okay. Now, the interesting thing was, is over the last month, basically last two months, I started to ramp up. Ever since that keto experiment, I started ramping up fasting. Yeah. And this previous month, my cycle was like shorter than it's ever been. Right. And okay. so that was interesting. Right. And I don't yeah. know if that was a, like, if that came from the fact that I was traveling a lot, which is stressful yep. or, but usually when I'm stressed out, my cycle is longer. So right. I was kind of like, what is this about? <laughs> and then the second time, uh, I was wearing a glucose monitor and like the, the previous month, my glucose monitoring was like pretty darn normal the entire time. But this last fast that I did, I know I did two, three day fasts, two weeks in a row that might've been too much for my system to handle. And it was during my luteal phase, so right before my period. And this last week, when I was wearing my continuous glucose monitor, I I refed on a retreat, right? Maybe not the optimal place to get refeeding because like I basically had only access to food that people were making us, and I broke some of my big rules, right? So I'm going from here, I'm going from like ketosis to like ad libitum eating, right? right. And um like what like nachos and pasta and like easy to make stuff. I didn't eat pasta, but we I definitely we definitely made like pumpkin pancakes with, with brown rice flour. Okay. Which I never eat flour of okay. any kind unless it's like nut flours and that's even still rare. Right. And then like I hadn't checked my glucose monitor until the next day. Actually, what did I first eat? I think I had some like tortilla chips and some granola and like some salad and some like whatever was laying around. I was just so like, your sugar was, so my sugar boom. went, so I, you, first of all, you're not supposed to go from ketosis to carbs like that. Your body doesn't want to do that because you're physiologically <laughs> insulin resistant. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I hadn't been paying attention to my glucose monitor. And I also was slightly stressed from the drive. Yeah. I'd worked four hours on the drive and then I, it was an unconference. And so I started giving a lecture on fasting right after this, or after, right after eating. Yeah. 
And so the next day after breakfast, when I had those pancakes that I had made, which were, by the way, amazing, but like, I never do that. I never eat pancakes with like rice rice flour. Uh, I looked at my monitor and I'm like, oh my God, (laughs) this is bad. What, 150? um, Okay, so (laughs) it was uh, 187 after these pancakes. I went outside, did 30 minutes of yoga, dropped it to 107 in 30 minutes. We just context. So above 125 fast is, is considered type 2 diabetic. No, fasting, but I wasn't fasting. Right, I was, right. it was but, just postprandial. But, but, but post-prandial. post-prandial 140 generally yeah. um, is considered to be like, but that's after the glucose to- tolerance right. test, which right. I basically had done. Yeah. But I was hovering around like pre-diabetes range, pre-diabetes range. Like 187 is really high. But like the cool thing was, is that I caught it. Yeah. I was only 30 minutes of an exposure and I basically dropped it 80 points from yeah. yoga. Yeah. And I and measured it from my finger prick as well to make sure that it was accurate. Because right. I, when you see a glucose monitor, you have to understand the glucose monitors are imperfect. Yeah. And so oftentimes I'll see it like a spike after like a carb after fasting. And then I'll be like, uh oh, and then I'll check it with my finger stick and yeah. double check to make sure that's not abnormal. And, and I've seen changes as much as like 30 points differences. Yeah. So I was like, okay, is this as high as I think it is? And because I saw it and because I acted on it, I was like, great. I don't, I now know that like pumpkin rice flour is not optimal plus honey, like not good for my metabolism, especially yeah. not good after fasting. Right. But I think the thing I learned from this experience is that we need to be vigilant about our blood sugars and these experiments that we're doing, especially if you're a woman and you're, challenging your body's physiology, especially around times like where you're, there are hormonal differences going on. You know, that's why I'm a big fan of continuous glucose monitoring because like without knowing that I, I could base like if you, like I was listening to Samaya, your, your friend who's a big yeah. faster and I was looking at her Instagram and I'm looking at her diet and what she eats on feasting days. Yeah. And she's eating a lot of refined carbohydrates and like she's, she's maintaining a healthy weight, right. but I'm dying to see what her blood sugar looks like. I'm just dying. To, Cause like, I, I want to know like, is it healthy or is it not? And right. like feeding and fasting, I think is like what we're designed to be doing as a, in terms of evolutionary biology. But the question is, is fast is feasting on what? It's certainly not feasting on refined carbs and sugar. Right. Maybe on special occasions, but on a day-to-day basis, it could be detrimental to our metabolism to be challenging our metabolism with these types of behaviors. Yeah, I think you bring up an interesting point that I think is not super well understood, which is that insulin resistance actually increases after a fast, mm-hmm. which is like counterintuitive, but in some sense, but it kind of makes sense that your body's not used to well, insulin, insulin decreases, but you can get insulin resistant because your brain is saying, if there is sugar in my body, it's coming to me first. Right. And so it's really just, it, your brain is doing this on purpose. Right. And it's, it's high fatty acids, which is opposing to insulin. Right. Yeah. It, it would make sense that your I mean, you're, and your body, by the way, when your body breaks down fat, triglycerides, when your body's breaking down glycogen, Initially, it's producing carbohydrates from that. And then eventually you're in ketosis and your brain is still craving sugar. So if there's any sugar in your body from any place that's going to your brain and your peripheral tissues are basically like trying to protect your brain. And so it's not a bad thing. And I think that there are people, there's like certainly the high carb, low fat people who believe that fats are bad and fats cause insulin resistance and we're all going to die. But like, (laughs) I'm a big believer that like, we should just understand what our body is trying to do in order to keep us alive. And also, like, with respect to that, be careful with how we experiment. Yeah. I also want to underline it because I think you're being a really good point. So the brain needs sugar. Mm-hmm. And when you are in a ketogenic state, it's basically shuttling as much of the remaining glucose to your brain. Yeah. As opposed to just giving it to your muscle. Mm-hmm. And your muscles are running off of fat. 
right. which is why people see weight management or weight loss goals off of ketogenic diets right. or ketosis. Um, I think that's like interesting. It's an important way to look at it. Yeah. So you get that short-term insulin resistance. So your muscles aren't updating this much sugar. Yeah. And your body has to like have a few hours to readapt. Right. That initial shock can have like high glucose for an extended period of time. Sure. Yeah. I think another topic that needs to be talked about is like, I've gotten a lot of people messaging me on Instagram who are bodybuilders who've experimented mm. with ketosis. Yeah. And some of the men in particular have said, I started doing keto for many months while doing a really heavy lifting regimen and I totally screwed up my hormones. So it's not just women. Like this is happening to men as well. Hmm. And in so- In what sense? Like the testosterone? Is- testosterone, okay. thyroid hormones, adrenal hormones. Like basically like, I think different hormonal systems can be thrown off from just too much famine. Yeah. Like if you put your body in a famine, like if you think about like a really lean, really muscular looking bodybuilder, their body fat is so low that their body's like, I'm in a fat. That's the I'm, weakest state of their life. It's yeah. It's not healthy. Yeah. And you may look really cool and you may look really shredded, right. but like we need to actually ask ourselves like what is really optimal for longevity. And I don't know enough studies on bodybuilding to know like, do they live longer? Do they live shorter? What is the benefit to this long-term besides yeah. aesthetics? Yeah, that's a good point. So I do know when people are, bodybuilding they're cutting so much water weight and fat mm-hmm. just before the competition and oftentimes they say that they're literally the weakest they've been in their yeah. entire training cycle yeah um i think it's an interesting conversation around the role of lean muscle tissue for glucose control. sure I think it's another area that i think hasn't been discussed as much where yeah i think a lot of people associate lean muscle tissue as correlated for longevity and i mm-hmm. think people think about that in the sense of oh you have more muscle you're gonna have like less prone to injury mm-hmm. but i think a less well understood point of that is that besides your liver Mm -hmm. your muscles are where you can store glucose yeah okay so this is really important let's talk about more muscle you can store more glucose so um one of the things that most people don't understand about prediabetes that i think is like i want to hammer into the world because the science is there is that there's two types of prediabetes you can actually technically three there's impaired fasting glucose there's impaired glucose tolerance and then there's people who have both okay right if you have impaired fasting glucose you have hepatic insulin resistance, right? If you have impaired glucose tolerance, you have impaired skeletal muscle insulin sensitivity. Hmm. So if you have both, then you're kind of screwed. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, let's drill into it. So to explain it for, yeah, yeah you so want to explain so that your gluco- a little bit your, your muscles are a sink for glucose to go after meals, right? And then when your muscles fill up with glucose and there's no more space left for glycogen, you start taking that extra glucose and you start taking the triglycerides and you make you you basically make fat, right? Yeah, like the novel lipogenesis. Exactly. My favorite phrase. Exactly. So <laughs> whenever you have extra glucose laying around, your body says, okay, cool, I'm gonna store it. And then oftentimes, if you do this consistently, you get fatty liver, right? Mm-hmm. So if you fast, what you're doing is you're first and foremost eliminating the glycogen in your liver, right? When you exercise, you're eliminating the glycogen in both your liver and your muscles. So you're producing a glucose sink. And you're also improving insulin sensitivity with exercise. And so I think... Because you want to restore yeah, exactly. your body and your muscles want to uptake glucose exactly. after workouts. Like the, one of the best things you can do if you're fasting is also continuing to exercise. Yeah. One of the worst things you can do if you're fasting is stay sedentary. <laughs> um, one of the problems with fasting is that it does kind of send the signal to your body that like you don't want to move as much because you don't have as much fuel. Right. But I have found that... So, so doing all these experiments with fasting, like... It makes sense that I drop into ketosis faster when I'm exercising, but I've also noticed that like sometimes I get even better performance when I'm fasted, which mm. is kind of interesting. I do Ashtanga yoga and it's not easy, but right. like 
I feel like I'm more focused and I feel like I've got more catecholamines in my body because like I do. Right. And that gives me a little bit extra fuel to like really push into my exercise. Yeah. And it's um, aerobic, not doing anaerobic like you're lifting squat. you're lifting your body with body weight, but you're also doing a lot of breathing. So right. it is both. Like you're, you're doing you're, a lot of you're probably not going like much above like 120, 140 heart rate, right? Like and not not too much. It really depends on like there are handstands that I'm doing sometimes where like, you know, I mean, I'm lifting my whole body above sure. my head. Okay. Yeah. And then arm stands, like those can be kind of trying, I agree. Those but are it's nowhere like near that. as, as, You're as not much. squatting like 300 pounds. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But I do think that most people, when, when trying to hack prediabetes and diabetes, like a lot of doctors are like, just focus on food and food is important, but you also, you know, exercise does really improve insulin sensitivity. Yeah. And so, and also, and, and also just like muscle mass turns out I was reading a study how on, it was either think it was on human i think i've read studies on both humans and animals but extended day fasting can improve growth hormone secretion in both humans and animals which also can improve your body composition yeah and one of the weirdest things i've noticed from fasting is that even though i regain a lot of the weight that i lose when i start refeeding i feel leaner overall and so i do feel like it's changing my body composition yeah which is kind of cool you should get dexa scan so i actually I did, did, I did do okay. dexa, dexa scan before i started doing all this yeah. So I'm going to do another one in yeah. one more month after three months of all this. Yeah. And yeah, that's basically what I did. So I did a three month period of weekly 36 hour fast. And then like I did a seven day fast in, in between there as well. One weekly 36 hour. Yeah. So cool. weekly 36 hour. And then yeah. in the middle was a seven day straight water fast. Which oh, was wow. Aggressive. Yeah. Kind of a Phil Lippin style fast. Yeah. And uh, I had lost 2% of body fat percentage and gained like one or two pounds of lean muscle tissue. Wow. Which is like a nice combination. Right? Yeah. Like you get leaner and you get gained more muscle. It's just cool. funny though. Cause everyone's like, you're going to lose so much muscle. You're going to lose all your muscle by fasting. And right. I'm like, no, you're not actually. In fact, you might gain muscle <laughs> and lose. Especially if fat. you work out, if you work you out, you have to work out though. That's the most anabolic thing there is. Like yeah. you don't, you don't like eat and build muscle. You have to work out and of course eat to gain, to gain muscle. Yeah, exactly. Totally. I mean, that's the thing I try to tell people. It's like, if you want to build like muscle, like a bodybuilder, you actually do need a decent amount of insulin yeah. because you need a growth stimulus. Yeah. But if you're trying to lose body fat and gain muscle and just get leaner, then fasting and exercise is great. Yeah. I mean, you're a great example of this. I mean, just seeing you over the course of two years, like you've gotten way leaner and <laughs> it's awesome to see like your entire team. Like you guys are super lean people. Yeah, I know. It's been a fun journey just to sort of take what we experiment with see mm -hmm. that it actually works i mean i think we're just actually empiricists and scientists yeah. in some way right yeah like if fasting didn't work for us then we wouldn't do it like if i just like i i don't think we're dogmatic here no right no. if you find out tomorrow that fasting is gonna kill us we'd be like all right, like, <laughs> all right let's not do that okay so another thing we should talk about is like the different types of fasting that i've personally done with different assistant aids okay so i did my first three-day fast with just tea and coffee okay. with no creamer just mostly I was drinking a lot of oolong tea okay. and because I was just like kind of going nuts a little bit because yeah. I was like, oh my God, no food. This is a lot of days. Jason Fung's all about tea and fasting. He nailed it. Like my yeah. ketone levels skyrocketed after like one day. Yeah. Mostly I think because I was drinking so much tea. So by day two, I was at like ketones of 4.4. Oh, okay. So that like you typically would see that after a few days. Yeah. But it was way sped up from just drinking tons of tea. Yeah. I discovered this like milk oolong tea, which is like amazingly good tasting. Okay. And then also this like pu'er from Rainbow Market that like I'm obsessed with. So like I'm really into teas these days. Yeah. The only concern I have about teas is my doctor told me that caffeine is not great for female hormones. 
Interesting. So I'm like, oh, I can't give it up though. I really? love caffeine. I didn't know about that. I this mean, is something I've been reading more and more about. Like, How for, strong is that? It's pretty, I think it's a fairly strong association. Okay. However, I'm going to do more of like, I'm going to do more deep research before I come to a conclusion because I've always, I, I've always been a caffeine drinker. I know, like, I mean, just how many women do I see just walking on Starbucks all day yeah, long, right? Exactly. So it's like, mm. yeah. So the question is, is what's the dose? And then the other thing I did was a fat fast because I was like, oh, his complete guide to fasting says I can have fat for a fast. And I wasn't very much. It was like maybe 150 to 200 calories a day. Okay. And I well, have like to say. MCT oil or butter? Um, or you it was coconut oil, okay. ghee, maybe one or two nuts. Okay. Definitely nothing crazy. Right. But I have to say that that was a far harder fast to do. Huh. I, I think that when you give your body any type of calories, it's, it's just like, wait, what? You're just giving me 200? Like, that's it? And so my body was just like, nope. Yeah. So I hated that fast. That was yeah. like the worst fast. I, I was not happy. That's consistent with my experience too. If you're going to eat, then your body just expects to actually have a real meal. Yeah. Like, it, are you really going to die over 200 calories? Yeah. Just like, if you're going to fast, just fast. Okay. And then yeah. I did a, one of my previous 24-hour fasts yeah. when I was traveling to Israel with the ketone esters. And I'm yes. sitting on Turkish Airways in business class because I decided beforehand I was going to upgrade because I was like, I deserve this. <laughs> and did not realize how good their food was going to look. They had a chef on the flight and there was like food going back. International and forth. business is great. Oh my God, it was ridiculous. <laughs> and but here's the thing. The guy sitting next to me is like this head of GE of Saudi Arabia, right? Okay. And he sits, he's sitting there just like eating everything and watching me prick my fingers, test my ketones, <laughs> drink he- human ketone esters, prick yeah. my finger again. Yeah. He's like, what are you doing? Yeah, are you sick? <laughs> Who are you? you and disease. <laughs> what kind of person are you? Yeah. And I'm just like, oh, I'm doing all this met- metabolism research. And we started getting into to, like talking about why Saudi Arabia is just suffering so much from yes. diabetes. Yes. And he was like, you're like in the future. He's like, you're literally from the future. He's like, this is where things are going to have to go because yeah. we're really getting, like our country's getting super sick. Yeah. And, and I was like, yeah, the problem is, is that like, the solution is fasting and most people don't want to fast. Right. <laughs> He's like, no, we're fasting for Ramadan. Like we're used to fasting. He's like, you just got to tie in the cultural aspect of it and make it more of like a, you know, you got to figure out how to get people to think about it from like that perspective as well, which I think is really smart. But I found that that like international travel with ketones, really, really different experience than just regular fasting. Like, first of all, the first time I did, I, I was actually in your offices. The first time I tried your ketones when I was right. doing a 16 hour fast, right. I had a pretty decent like ketone level. I think it was like 0.8 or something. Right. And I was just like, what is this stuff? What am I going to be drinking? What is this like? Drank your ketones. And I remember thinking this, I feel like of a video game character and I'm getting a new life. Like the, <laughs> I felt my legs sort of tingling and I just felt like I had all this energy that was just like, like kind of like going from my feet to my head. And this keeps on happening every time I do a fast with ketones. Yeah. It's like, I get this tingly feeling in my feet, like you're getting another life now. <laughs> <laughs> and it really does provide a sense of, you know, part of it is I think psychology because like, I know that I have fuel, but part of it is physiology. Like my body is getting an, a boost of ketones that frankly, like makes it easier to just go into that state. Yeah. And I think for a lot of people, who aren't fat adapted yet, this might be one of the few solutions that could actually help people learn to fast more efficiently. My personal belief is that you need to really think about fat adaptation before jumping into fasting. But I'm really curious to know, like with this tool, can we get people to that state of fasting faster? And maybe can they use fasting to get fat adapted? Maybe they won't have to use ketogenic dieting. I don't know. Yeah. No, I think that's a good 
point. And I think that's something that we're exploring. Obviously, a lot of our customers are mm-hmm. athletes and performance use case. But I would say that maybe 20 to 30% of our customers are using it for a fasting tool for metabolic health. Yeah. Right. And I think you're, what you're describing is that when people aren't fat adapted, mm-hmm. you have low sugar and you have low ketones at the same time. And then and you, you feel, feel like, like shit. Shit. Right. <laughs> so, you, so your body's just like, ah, like we need to eat some, something. Yeah. We're, we're freaking out. But if you get that ketone load, right. You know, right. equivalent to like 10 days of fasting in like 30 minutes. Yeah. yeah so this was me yeah. when I first started fasting, right. I would get hangry. I would be irritable. I would feel low energy. Yeah. And then through, you know, basically when I was in your offices a few months ago, I was like, you were like, you just got to stick with it and just keep fasting and just try it because you're going to get, it's going to get easier. And I was like, I really hope you're right. (laughs) (laughs) And then it did. And then the next thing I knew every week, I was like, I can do more. I can do more than this. And then two, two weeks of three days in a row, I was like, okay, I think I can do a little less. (laughs) But the fact that like, it's now something that I can just be like, oh, if I need to fast, I'm going to fast. And it's no longer like a thing that I worry about. Like, it's no longer even a question of, can I do it? That to me, like the, the coolest thing that I have found is the heart rate variability mm, improvements. Have you heard about this work? Okay. So I mean, I noticed I'm, I'm wearing an oil ring. Now. Yeah. So like I actually do see if I'm eating earlier uh-huh. to match. So basically I have a longer window before sleeping. Yeah. My heart rate variability is higher uh-huh. and my resting heart rate is lower. Yeah. So it's like a more optimal heart. Okay. Heart so function. I've been finding all this research on how, Fasting improves heart rate rate for heart rate variability. Yeah. And I put this to the test because I started fasting and I I spent this this year at the beginning of the year setting all my New Year's resolutions and I okay. set like tons of them. And I usually get more than half of them every year. It's like really fun to challenge yourself to in every aspect of your life. But in terms of my own like emotional health, I wanted to be more even killed under stress. I wanted to figure out like, how do I maintain balance despite a bigger workload? Because I knew I was going to be doing a lot more things than I was last year, this year. I would just, I had a feeling this year is going to be a year of a lot of action. And it, it has been. And the craziest thing I've noticed through fasting is how I do feel like I can handle more stress and just remain calm. And I was traveling from Israel to Lebanon, which you're not supposed to do because they are not friends. Right. And I was like, well, I'm going to do, that any, do this anyway because I'm, I'm Jewish, but I'm also Lebanese and I'm like, no one's going to stop me. So I go to, I go to like Tel Aviv and then I go to Cyprus and then I go to Lebanon and I get to Lebanon's border and I think I'm already, I'm like, oh yeah, home, home stretch. I'm going to get in. And the guy turns my passport over and he sees, he sees not the stamp, they sticker you. Uh. And in Israel, most people don't realize this, but these stickers have meaning behind them. They rank your level of Zionism and it's their stickers, their own security stickers for when you come back to Israel. Whoa. Yeah. So I didn't know what number I was, but I was kind of like, I had ripped off my previous sticker that I'd yeah. just gotten. And, but the one that was from before, it was like from two years ago yeah. and it was only half of a sticker. So I was like, ah, I guess I could just leave it. Right. Big mistake. Guy says, come with me. And so I'm, it was like super high in the Zionism ranking. Well, no, no, this was Lebanon. I just knew that I was in Tel Aviv okay, and you're not okay. allowed to go from Israel to Lebanon. Okay. Big no, no. Okay. And I was like, oh, they'll never know. I don't get stamped in Israel. Yeah. So I went to this back room and there's people that are arguing with these border patrol guards. They're like, you can't cook us out of the country. And, and I'm sitting there just like smiling. And I turn my app on my phone, uh, my breathe app on my Apple watch. I start breathing deeply and I'm just like chatting up the people. I'm like, uh, yeah, I was in I was in Israel like two years ago because like I needed a good story because yeah. I wasn't gonna be like yeah I was there like two hours ago or right. like two days ago. I, I go look my last name's Malouf. I'm Lebanese. My dad's Lebanese. My grandfather's Lebanese. Like I really want to see the country. That's why I'm here. And I was in a layover before. Right. And that's why I got that sticker. 
And I was just really calm the whole time. And then he takes me to another room. And the other room was like, there's a guy in a jail cell. There's a guy at a desk. He's smoking a cigarette. Damn. And there's no windows. And it's fluorescently lit. And I'm just sitting there like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, okay, we need to take your statement for the military court. And I'm like, shit, am I what going to jail? <laughs> wow. And, and I tell him my story, which, you know, I'm not a big believer in lying. But if, you re- like, if you're in a situation like I'm in, like. I think it's excusable. It's excusable. It's excusable. And. So I go, look, I was um, in, this was actually a true story. I was in Athens a few years ago. I did have a layover in Tel Aviv. I showed him my stamps. I was like, I was, this is when I was there. And so he takes my statement and the guy barely speaks English and he's using like copy paper and they don't even have computers. It's like literally like he's handwriting it out. He faxes it to the military court, right? They use fax machines. And I realized about halfway through this experience that like the guy was on my side because I was, I look Lebanese my last name sounds Lebanese. Right. My story, you know, worked out. But I'm like sitting there for hours. And typically, like, I think most people would have been kind of uncomfortable. You yeah. know, I just like took the whole experience as like, you know what? This is going to be fine. Regardless of what happens, I'm going to be fine. If I have to go home, great. I'll go to another country. Like, whatever. You weren't concerned about like just getting thrown in one of the cells? And- well, they let the guy out of the jail cell okay, out, okay. which was like made me feel better. Yeah, He was from Paraguay, apparently. And I didn't understand why they were holding him. But about three and a half hours into this experience, we get a call and they're like, you can go now. And I'm like, what do you mean I can go? They're like, yeah, you're free to go. I'm like, yes. And I just had the best high of my life. I got into Beirut. <laughs> I had the best time. But like, I learned a lot about, you know, like how to remain calm. And, and I honestly think that like, this would never have been me a year ago. I would never have been this calm under pressure. And the only, the biggest change in my life over the last two months was literally fasting. And so I really do believe that this has contributed to like a greater improvement in my heart rate variability than anything else. Hmm. It's pretty astonishing. Yeah, I think part of it from my perspective is that it also practices discipline, right? Like you have a mastery over your own body's desires in some sense, right? Like like eating is very pleasurable. That's what I've just noticed, you know, through the fasting experience that a lot of times when you eat, it's Mm -hmm. like for fun, not for actually For hedonism or for because something smells good or because... Like people miss, people don't totally understand hunger and really true hunger is something that comes in waves throughout the day with ghrelin curves, right? Right. So you get a few ghrelin curves throughout the day. And most hunger is actually just people who are constantly riding the glycemic response curve and they're constantly spiking and dropping their blood sugar. Mm -hmm. And so they're getting low blood sugars. They're getting insulin spikes. Insulin makes you hungry. So if you're constantly pulsing insulin throughout the day with sugar, you're getting hungrier because you're eating food that is making you hungrier, right? right? And then on top of that, we get thousands of messages of food all day long to eat. And that activates the dopaminergic systems in our brain, the hedonism pathways, the pleasure pathways, right. the wanting and the liking of food. And that can make you think you're hungry, even though you just want the food or you just like the way food tastes. Right. And this is why when you're eating a multi-course meal, you're able to easily eat more food because of different foods tasting good continues to activate that pathway. And so it's not that you actually necessarily have room for all this food it's that it's a novel experience novelty factor yeah. right and then yeah. there's also like the emotional hunger that most people are suffering from in our country because a lot of people are suffering from chronic loneliness depression anxiety right. people are are using food as a medication because carbohydrates activate serotonin and that makes you feel better for a lot of people i think they're consuming carbs because you know their their cortisol might be too high and that makes you crave carbs or they're just chronically depressed and they want to medicate. And it really like 
one of the things that I've been trying to understand more is like, what's true hunger? When am I really hungry? Right. And also when you're really hungry and you're fasting and you learn to handle that wave and you realize that it's not a tidal wave, it's just a breaker. You're like, oh my God, I'm a superhero. Like I can handle anything. I can be under a state of true hunger and be okay. And to me, like, that's an ultimately adapted human is like, I could be anywhere in the world without food for a week if I needed to, and I would be fine. Yeah. And that's actually where we want to get people to go. But most people couldn't be without food for a few hours without falling apart. Or so they think. Well, that that's the yeah. thing. Yeah. So they think. I mean, that was me even a year ago. Yeah. Is like, maybe not a year ago, but like two years ago for sure. Yeah. You know, I definitely would get hangry. I definitely would feel low blood sugar and be like, oh my God, I'm in survival mode. And you have to flip that brain switch and realize you're going to be fine. Yeah. And also you've got enough food to eat because you have fat in your body. Right. <laughs> and you're eating that fat when you're fasting, you know? One thing I thought was interesting was the benefits of having some insulin for bodybuilding or just for mm-hmm. exercise. And I think that it's easy in a discussion like this to go super polar against totally. carbs, like carbs are evil and all of that. And it's like, you know, I think it's pretty well accepted. You probably don't need to eat refined sugar. Like you can probably remove that, but there's a role for carbs, especially for oh my God, weightlifting, I exercise. I totally We should agree. talk about that. I mean, I think it's like, we should find this. Well, yeah. I think there's like a nuance here. Where I feel like you don't get any attention if you're not just like crazy polar. Okay. It's so, happening with the political totally. system. It's happening with like nutrition as well these days, I feel. Great company called Metaflow that I'm, I may or may not start doing some work with them. Um, haven't yet, but I've just been using their device as a beta tester. Mm-hmm. And what they do is they measure your respiratory quotient. And okay. I might've mentioned this in the previous podcast, but I've started to use them more. And what it does is it measures the- How does it um, work? You have, so you're, you're you blow, no, you blow into this okay. device and you blow in oxygen, right? And then- it, Can we explain RQ before? Yeah, for, so for RQ folks? is kind of tricky to, to explain, but basically the percentage of carbohydrates and fat that you are burning can be determined by the difference in carbon dioxide blow off that you- create like the difference in the oxygen you you blow into the device and the carbon dioxide you blow out but fundamentally like you have two sources of fuel that you can burn you can burn fats or carbs and the percentage that you're burning of fats or carbs is your respiratory quotient and the ratio closer to one is carb burning ratio closer to 0.7 is fat burning exactly so this device can tell by the carbon dioxide blow off how much you are actually burning yeah so what's nice about this is that it's really a tool for assessing your metabolic flexibility, yeah. which is really like how easily do you convert back and forth between carb burning and fat burning. Yeah. And what they've noticed in their program is like what they'll do is they'll cycle carbohydrate consumption with like higher carb with lower carb. And they're having a lot, people lose pretty significant weight loss, like 15 to 20 pounds weight loss when, from just using this device and just modulating carbohydrates. Mm. And I think that, you know, obviously I'm waiting to see like the totals numbers of what their success stories are. And I'm also just like, I have a lot of research to do in this space to really, before I totally convert over to like, this is the future. But I think having a glucose monitor is a pre-cellular tool for analyzing your fuel stores. It's like, what's in your bloodstream? Right. But then post-cellular is the respiratory quotient. It's like, what have you already metabolized? And I think both of these together is a pretty magical combination because now we're starting to get real-time fuel store analysis. Yeah. And that's pretty astonishing. Yeah. The RQ has been interesting. I've been meaning to get that done. I know that's interesting that you can have it in a device. I know that typically today you are doing like VO2 max tests. I mean, you're literally wearing a rebreather and like getting this analyzed. Right. So it's cool that they've come up with such a small, seemingly, you know. Yeah. I mean, really the sensors have just gotten cheaper. Yeah. They've gone from hundreds of dollars to like, tens of dollars and so because of that 
they can make it something more scalable. Yeah, so I think one of the early, early pilots of Ketone Esser showed that your RQ is more efficient while using Ketone Esser versus other substrates. So it's one of the starting yeah. principles that like led down to the development of the Ketone Esser. Oh my God, wow. Because if you actually think about why is the ratio closer to one when mm -hmm. you're burning carbs? Carbohydrates are more oxidized. There's more mm -hmm. oxygens in a carbon molecule versus exactly. a fatty acid chain. Yes. Right? And yes. ketones look more like uh, a fatty acid chain than a carbon molecule. Right. So it's an interesting substrate to be more efficient for metabolism. Right. And and the thing about human health and adaptation, this concept of like being able to adapt and self-manage, being metabolically flexible, I think, is a marker of a healthy human. Yep. And there's a great paper, I'll send it to you, and it's called Flipping the Metabolic Switch and why this is important for health span and lifespan. And really the belief is that the more often you can go between carb burning and then also depleting your glycogen reserves, that in itself is like really good for your metabolism long-term. Yeah. And it may be that being sustained in a ketotic fat-burning state isn't good long-term. It may be that that is damaging to hormones if you do it too much. Right. It may be that we're supposed to go back and forth. Right. Or it's possible that like seasonally we're supposed to eat differently. I mean, there's so much we need to learn about yeah. like what makes for the healthiest lifestyle possible. Right. But I think it makes intuitive sense. And also there's a lot of papers on this now that say that we should be tapping into our own fat stores more often. Right. We should not be burning carbs consistently. And that's right. what most people are doing. And it's not surprising that most people have too much blood sugar in their bloodstream. Yeah. I mean, I would respond by saying that I think sustained keto is likely to be safe, just given out all the longitudinal studies on keto. Mm -hmm. But I would say that I think it is open, as, as you were saying, that it's not necessarily optimal. I, I think there's a point around cyclical keto, right? And that's I what think, I'm thinking I, I think, about. I think that's something that I've been incorporating. Yeah. Because I, I know just from like an exercise perspective, if you are just eating keto, you're just not going to have that burst energy. And like all of the elite athletes that we work with, they might train ketotically mm -hmm. to be more metabolically flexible. Yeah. But during their like Olympic trials or their games, they're getting a full fuel selection. Well, let's think about that, right? So I always like use the candle of kindling analogy. But if you have a bunch of kindling and you light it on fire, yeah. it burns real fast. Yeah. It's like you want that kindling in your body. You want that glycogen so you can burn it, yeah. so you can run, so you can produce power, energy. Like our bodies are not that, like they're so complicated, but they're not, right? Yeah. Now, to me, ketones is kind of like a little bit of rocket fuel, right? Yeah. Like that's cool that you can pour a little bit of extra fuel onto a body and say, I'm going to have this like extra fuel stores. But most of us, you know, like just using our own fat stores for our Olympic trial, that's really, that's like burning a candle. It's yeah. not going to burn fast. Yeah. You want to have that fast burning fuel for power. And what I'm trying to figure out right now as I dig deep into fitness and continuous glucose monitoring is well, how do we use the glucose monitoring tool to optimize human performance in athletics? Right. And right now I'm getting so much of my evidence from type ones because they're the ones who've been monitoring this the longest, but yeah. I don't have enough research from people who are healthy. And yeah. so, you know, like we're going to have to start doing some studies eventually on that. That reminded me of a point that I wanted to bring up, which is the metabolic flexibility point. So there's been good success where diabetics are going on keto mm -hmm. and then reversing their blood sugar and reducing their insulin load, yeah. right? You need less medication. But I think there is a good, interesting open question around, have they really reversed diabetes or cured diabetes or they just manage the symptoms? This is a good, right? really good question. Like, like yeah. no one has tried to like refeed them carbs. Right. Right. Like it sounds like you have really good glycemic control. Like, well, if you except for after a, uh, you know, after fasting. I've asked when I, when I didn't, Yeah, you know, like th there is evidence that shows that after some, for some women who have already normal glycemic control, 
if you do fast them, there can be abnormal glucose tolerance after it. But here's the thing. Does that mean I'm permanently have abnormal glucose tolerance or was that a temporary state? Right. Now let's get back to diabetes. I think a lot of people focus so much on these clinical endpoints and measurements and less about the big picture of what's really going wrong with this person's health. Mm-hmm. And diabetes is not just a disease of too much blood sugar. It's a disease of a person who is not adapting to the environment that they're living in. And by not adapting to the environment, I mean, they're not getting enough sunlight. They're not getting enough nature exposure. They're not getting enough fresh air. They're getting way too much pollution. They're getting the wrong packaged processed foods in their bodies. Right. They're oftentimes like not getting enough family and community time. And there's a lot of reasons why all of these things contribute to abnormal blood sugar. Like to me, abnormal blood sugar is just an endpoint that's showing a person is breaking down. And it's like, yes, you can treat the symptoms. You can treat the problem under, like you can treat the insulin resistance. You can treat the high blood sugar, but it's not fixing the societal issues that are contributing to people's health getting disordered. And I think the same thing can be said about hypertension and hypercholesterolemia. Like these are just markers of an unhealthy person. And these are markers that, that, that show that you can be predisposed to pathology But it's like, let's look at the big picture of society and say, where are people thriving without any of these problems? And what's different about their lifestyles? And frankly, like a lot of it has to do with how people live, how their lifestyles are like. I think eventually everyone's been converging. We we all need to build like a giant culture company. Like I think think it's basically like what we're all trying to do in in our various channels, right? Yeah. You've mentioned cholesterol. Have you been following... The LDL, HDL, oh my God, yes. triglyceride story. Okay, okay. So uh, I mean, that's something I've been <laughs> curious about and become like amateur lipidologist. But oh my God. I'm curious to hear your yeah. thoughts on on that whole story around how high LDL might not necessarily be a demonized right. biomarker. Well, okay. So, so I'm curious to get your thoughts on it. I think I don't know if I mentioned this to you. I don't think I, this was on the last podcast, but as I was digging into diabetes nutritional treatments, yeah. I came across a high carb, low fat group and a low-carb, high-fat group, right? Well, let's not name these groups, but you know who they are. (laughs) One of them is in San Diego, one of them is in San Francisco. And I was looking at their numbers and their outcomes, and I was like, oh my God, both groups are seeing the same drop in hemoglobin A1C, and both groups are seeing the same drop in weight in the course of a year. And I'm like, what's going on here? Okay, like, how is this possible? But then I said to myself, okay, Let's see what the literature says about both of these types of diets and what really, what changes in terms of blood markers that are problematic that they weren't reporting. Well, typically what you see in the high carb, low fat group is they elevate their triglycerides. Typically what you see in some people in the high fat, low carb group is you do see some people get high LDL. And I'm one of those people. Me too, actually. My LDL raises. My LDL goes up. But the question is, is like, you know, both of those are considered to be bad endpoints according to the American Cardiology Association. But should we be worried about them? right? My personal belief is that this is just first principles at work, right? Like I have an APOE4 gene. I have a few genes that predispose me to being at risk for high cholesterol if I eat lots and lots of saturated fat. The APOE4 for Alzheimer's as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And basically anyone with an APOE4 needs to be careful about too many refined carbs and too much saturated fat. And don't take brain hits. Thank God I have not had any (laughs) concussions. Yeah. But like I haven't experimented yet with the high carb, low fat diet. I'm terrified of doing it, but I also kind of think it'd be fun to just eat vegetables and fruit for a month and see what happens to my body. Like I've never done it before, but like, what would happen? What would I feel like? Who knows? And what I really want to know about these two groups of people is who are the failures and what happened to those people? 
Like what's going on with the people who failed the keto diet? What's going on with the people who failed the carb diet? And also maybe we need to meet somewhere in the middle. And so what I'm proposing right now that we're doing with Sano, we're doing some internal studies where we're taking people on regular diets, giving them the continuous glucose monitors for a week just to see what happens by monitoring their food. And then we're going to give them a plant-based diet with some protein, mostly plant-based, but with some protein diet from a very popular delivery company in the San Francisco area. And we're going to see what happens when you take a person on like a normal type diet with standard American foods to whole foods. Because my theory is that part of what's wrong with people's diets is that they're eating all this fake crappy food that's like not contributing to a healthy metabolism. And then maybe what's happening with these people with different macronutrient ratios is like they're getting on whole foods. Right. They're getting on real foods. And maybe that's why everyone's getting the same drop in hemoglobin A1C and weight. I actually agree with that, actually. I think that a large contributing factor when people change to one of these quote-unquote fad diets is that they're just probably eating healthier. Yeah, they're eating, and, and the thing is they're they have eating rules whole now. foods, right? They now have they whole have foods rules. now. <laughs> and I think there is some interesting, uh, that's something that I think is going to be interesting to debate and discuss in the literature. I think there's clearly people that see success with high carb, low fat. Mm-hmm. There's clearly people that see success with the complete opposite. Yeah. I, I think it's cheap to be like, no, you're lying or you're BSing to either side. It's like, maybe there's some genetic component to that that we don't fully understand Mm -hmm. or maybe both routes could work the thing that i'm trying to constantly evolve my own perspectives around and what i'm trying to do to sort of separate myself from the pack is like how do we move away from like being so overly focused on clinical endpoints and so overly focused on signaling pathways and start looking at the macro picture of humanity and saying like what would the most adapted evolved human look like? Because yeah. we're going through a massive human evolution right now. Yeah. Like with technology, with all this information, with all these new tools that we have to advance our physiologies and our lifestyles, how do we become a more evolved human in the future? And what does that look like? And to me, it looks like, how can I take whatever fuel supply available to me? By the way, by fuel, I do not mean packaged processed crap. I mean fuel, real food. How do I take whatever food's available to me and metabolize it effectively without having problems? Yeah. And like, to me, that's what I want to be. I want to be able to go anywhere in the world, eat for the most part, any healthy whole food and not get sick yeah. <laughs> and actually metabolize it well. And like, that to me is like a superpower, you know? And that's what I think we should be striving for potentially. The only issue with that argument is that like the microbiomes of the food supplies all over the world do sometimes cause people to react differently. Yeah. So it would be really cool if I could just go to India and eat whatever I wanted. But I do have a feeling that like I might get sick still occasionally. Like all of us are probably going to have some GI distress. You know, like yeah. like we might, I think part of, the, part of the reason why Americans probably do get sick when they travel a lot is because we have very weak microbiomes because yeah. we've assaulted them with antibiotics for many, many years. Yeah. And we know now that like a lot of these fake sugars and these preservatives are maladaptive to the microbiome. Yeah. But I would say that probiotic foods like kimchi or sauerkraut, I think they're getting more popular. But hopefully we I see I ferment my own kombucha. yogurt. I make my really? own kombucha. I make my own vinegar now. I make my own lacto-fermented vegetables. You got to eat at your place. I mean, one thing that I thought was interesting was why isn't there like full-fat milk yogurts? Everything you you in, can get them now. Yeah, I see that. It's, yeah. it's but they're hard all, to find. They're all filled with sugar, though. That's a, like, that's there's a problem so with, much yeah, sugar. That's a problem with yogurt. It's like 20 grams of sugar right yeah. in there. I, I just find um, at at um, Bite Right Bite Right Market this sheep's milk yogurt, full fat. That's like amazing, totally delicious, like over the top good, creamy, just incredible, super easy to digest. Kind yeah. of expensive, 
but really good. <laughs> yeah. Now, going back to your point around just being metabolically flexible to be able to consume any sort of fuel, I would actually very much agree with that. It reminds me of something that Jordan Peterson, who you guys might have heard about, yeah, speaks about politics. Yeah, he, he's he's interesting because he's carnivore and oh, really? And keto. He's carnivore. Really? His daughter, who we're talking with, she's pretty public around having autoimmune issues. Okay. And yeah. basically resolved it with going carnivore, like keto Completely? and then going carnivore. Wow. Well, so so here's the thing. Like, I I think that my question around all this is like, what happens to your microbiome when you just eat meat? Like, how do you grow a healthy microbiome without fiber? You know? I think the counter, so that's the, the counter argument there would be, well, if you eat awful like the yeah oh like yeah liver kidney yeah. um, there should be a lot of nutrients in that yeah yeah so you can balance it if you actually if you just eat hamburger meat or like sausages yeah you're not getting that diversity within just protein you can certainly get enough vitamins and minerals but the question is is like like a healthy microbiome typically likes fiber to make small chain fatty acids right, right? And that feeds that mucosal layer. Right. So I would be, I would want to do a stool study on these people and right. find out what is it, what does their microbiome look like? Yeah. And yes, maybe they've quelled the inflammation right. and reduced, you know, maybe some small bacterial intestinal overgrowth yeah. or whatever. But the real question is, is like, is that long term healthy? And yeah. like, I would also want to measure Jordan's ferritin levels because there is a pretty significant correlation between high ferritin levels in men and heart, heart disease. Yeah. And so like, because I've done so much research in nutrition and I am at the point where I really feel like nobody really truly understands yeah. what's correct for humanity. Like I will admit it, that the it more, has to be spoke, I the think. more it, that I learn, yeah. the more that I don't trust like anyone, anyone. <laughs> but at the same time, the more that I, I'm striving to like, think about the big picture. Yeah. And the reality is, is that if you look at Eskimos, they're eating a crap ton of animal foods, yeah. right? So, I mean, maybe if he's eating healthy, healthy animals, yeah. he's evolved and he, he's evolving to consume this. Yeah. And also like, there's a really great story about this guy who survived. He was like the sound engineer for the Grateful Dead. He ended up getting esophageal cancer and living off of meat for like 15 years, like a meat slurry. He was yeah. like literally starving his cancer. So you can survive on this. Right. But the question is, is do you want to? Right. <laughs> like I personally love food so much, but I'm also... Like if I had cancer, what would I try? Like, would I go Gerson? Would I, I mean, would I go carnivore? I'm a big believer that we're going to have an entire array of diets for cancer in the future Yeah. for different types of cancer. You know, there's so much to be thought about when it comes to different diets for therape different yeah. therapeutics. So I brought up Jordan because I think he has a saying around that the goal for a meaning of life is not to just to win in a specific game, but to mm -hmm. have a strategy that wins in the set of all possible games. I think that, oh, that's great. Which is like interesting when I think about like, how do you want to carry out your life? Yes. Right. Because if I, you know, win in this one little game that we play yeah. and let that really make you feel bad. Yeah. And we're never going to play a game again. That's where fasting is beautiful, by the way, because fasting wins in so many cases. Like I've noticed that since I started fasting, I can eat a lot more of a diverse diet yeah. and maintain the same weight. Yeah. I can actually tolerate a lot more foods and yeah. still... Like, and also I can have like a day where like I do cheat a little bit yeah. and I can recover a lot faster. Yeah. Like that's to me a pretty great example of someone who's like winning in different environments. Right, and hence the metabolic flexibility. Yeah. Right. And I think that maybe the solution is not just have like a 30, 30, 30 macro, but like just swing, pull, you know, yeah, swing I think from it's like moving around. keto to like high carb. And then, you know, like I think your metabolism eat. wants to be surprised. Yeah. In fact, I think it had historically been surprised quite a lot yeah. with whatever was available. Right. And so 
that we may still have that genetic makeup. And that could explain why a lot of people tend to do well when they shift their macronutrients around. They see changes in their body composition. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, it's definitely something to be explored. I know that a lot of the cyclical work of cyclical keto mm-hmm. over at the Buck Institute, which is, you know, role regard longevity institute is yep. showing that like cyclical keto is just as good as normal keto. And this is done Can on you mice. define that by the way? I think they're putting mice on two weeks of keto and then two weeks of standard Western diet. Cool. And they were living longer than standard Western diet. I think you see very similar studies with like every other day fasting in animals or, you know, even extended fasts in animals. Like you just can live longer. Yeah. And you know what I love about fasting is how my skin looks so great when I fast. Like, have you heard of autofluorescence? We're talking about this. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Um, You can actually measure the light output of a person's skin. And that correlates to the level of advanced glycation end products. So the more advanced glycation end products that your skin accumulates, the older your skin looks, the more wrinkles you get because of the more damage to the proteins in your skin, the collagen right. and the elastin. Right. And so what I've noticed is that with fasting, I just start seeing my skin start glowing after a few days. It's pretty cool. Like yeah. I know I'm like becoming the, I'm this crazy convert, but <laughs> I have to admit, you guys are pretty much responsible for this transformation. I think there's some rhyme to that madness in the sense that like some people look healthier and maybe it's an autofluorescence. Yeah. I mean, you're also right? taking out the garbage of your cells. Yeah. You're like upregulating all these anti-aging pathways. But oh my God, the coolest thing I learned was listening to this podcast by Krista Tippett called On Being. Okay. She was interviewing a physicist, theoretical physicist who was talking about how time is all relative and time doesn't actually exist. Right. But it's the difference between variables and specifically heat. Okay. And so one of the things that he was saying is that basically like heat exchange over time kind of helps define time, right? Like the fact that like- That's like, basically the entropy. Yes, story. exactly. Okay. And so what I'm thinking is happening when you're fasting is you're actually just decreasing entropy because you're huh. reducing heat exchange in <laughs> your body. That's a funny way to think about but it. But think about it. Yeah, it's yeah, like, no, it's, I think it's an interesting way it to think about it. It actually is very simple phys- physics, right? <laughs> and, and to me, I'm really attracted to like beautiful, elegant theories of science. Right. And I know I'm producing less heat when I'm fasting because I'm cold. Like I know yeah. when I'm cold and yeah. I know when I'm warm. And I love the feeling of understanding what's going on inside my body. And I do think that like fasting is a way to like literally reverse the clock in your cells. By just the change, change in heat exchange. That's funny. I, mm-hmm. I didn't think about it from the entropy story. I think that's that's a funny way to think about it. That's yeah. cool. Maybe I'm wrong, but it, it makes sense to me scientifically. So I'm going to go with it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think the heat thing, I think is from a slowing of metabolism more than... Yeah, but that that I mean, that in itself which, is also... Which I think, again... So the same, reduces entropy, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, so yeah, what are the big <laughs> things? So like busy 2018 so far. Yeah, so last time we talked, you yeah. were like... I think at the end, I remember listening to the podcast right. and you're like, wait, that's it? Is that all you're going to do? And then I, after the podcast, I was like, I guess I should do more things this year. <laughs> so so I've been working at Sano a couple yeah. days a week. I've been actually using a lot of the learnings that I've gotten from fasting and continuous glucose monitoring to sort of redesign my practice around a metabolic flexibility program, which I'm continuing to work on. Right. And we'll hopefully roll out sometime this summer with like a beta test group where what we'll be doing is we'll be teaching people from like a firsthand experience with monitoring their blood sugar, their ketones, their respiratory quotient, and basically teaching people how to become metabolically flexible through different dietary changes, as well as through fasting. So ketone esters will certainly hopefully be a part of that because I think that getting people past that inflection point is really challenging. And then I have been working on developing a podcast myself. So I hope to launch that in July. And then I've been doing a little bit of- What's it going to be called? 
I don't know yet. I don't have a good one. All right. I need a name. If you can help me think of a good name, like that's one of the things that's keeping me from like fully pushing it out yet. But it's going to have to be good. I don't know what it's going to be right now. <laughs> so if anyone has any good ideas, please come to my Instagram, drmolly.co and give me your ideas because I need some. And then Not I've done Dr. some- Dr. Molly show. I, I mean, I was thinking that Dr. Yeah. Molly show or like Dr. Molly on and then dot, dot, dot or something because it's going to be different on different topics. Yeah. But um, I've been doing some wellness travel excursions. I went to Esalen Institute and taught a bunch of executives all about how to plan your life like a startup and how to- really like create systems for setting goals for your year and really actualizing those goals and really just analyzing how can you make progressive improvement in your life over time. I'll be doing that again in August. And then I'm trying to think of all the other things. So I'm still advising a few companies. And a few months ago, I was like really getting a little burned out from work. And so I started traveling a little bit. So I did a bit, I did a bunch of travel and now I'm kind of getting back into the whole like, okay, I need to hustle again. So really I'm just trying to roll out the podcast, the Really, I'm just working on this product at Sano as well and like trying to get some preliminary studies really designed well where we're doing accuracy studies right now just to really prove that we're equivalent to the existing tools on the market. And then we want to start studying different interventions, different nutritional interventions to see how do we how do we continue to teach people how to lower postprandial glucose and lower fasting glucose. And I've also developed some products in the meantime. I've I've developed a skin product that you know, really has like changed my skin dramatically. So I'm working on the labeling over my next vacation uh, with my family in July. And then I'll be testing this out on my community before I actually launch a website around selling it. Very cool. And then I want to, and then I'm trying what's to work the, what's on- What's the secret magic sauce or what were the- It has about 15 different oils. Okay. It has base oils. It has sort of, they call bonus oils, which are like active oils, but they're not essential oils. Yeah. And then it's got essential oils. And then it also has like a super hyper potent stabilized vitamin C. Mm. And then it also has a couple absolutes. So it's got a really amazing smell. Like it just smells like ma- magical on your skin. And then it has some preservatives that are plant-based preservatives. Mm. So it's pretty, it does have one product that comes from an animal. It has an emu oil in it, which I'm going to replace, I think, with macadamia oil just for the vegans. Um, because I know that vegans are not going to want animal-based yeah. stuff. Yeah. And then I'm actually working on putting a sunscreen into this. Because I want this to be like an all-purpose skin product that essentially just does everything you need it to do for your yeah, skin. Because yeah. I'm trying to become as minimalistic as I can. As I start digging into fertility and understanding health, I'm starting to realize that all these beauty products that I'm putting in and on my body are just not healthy. And so I'm trying to develop a product that is all-purpose, singular tool that just you only will need to put this on your skin and you're going to be good. Yeah. So that's what I'm working on. Yeah. I mean, if I said anything about not needing more stuff now, I mean, now you have a lot on your plate for the rest yeah, of the year. Yeah, I have a it's lot like, on wow. my plate. It's pretty fun. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, thanks so much for coming by. I mean, this is actually going to be the last podcast taped in this studio. Oh, my God. So you're closing out this version of the human this podcast. Era. Wow, this era. I mean, honestly, I, I keep on listening to your podcast. And just from the very, very beginning to now, I'm so impressed with just how you guys have evolved. Like, Thank I you. love your work. I'm a fangirl of human, you know, you guys are great. I actually doubted you. I'm a fangirl of Molly. I doubted so. you guys so much when I first met you. And now I'm like, all right, I, I'm joining the club. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. Sure. And we'll have to have you on in our new studio great. In, in, in the coming months. And I think it sounds like you're going to have a lot to report back on. So. I sure am. Yeah. Thanks so much. Bye. I know a lot of you guys have been writing in at podcast.human.com for different questions or topics or subjects that you'd like myself and our research lead, Dr. Brianna Subs, to cover. 
So let's actually make a Q&A special episode to answer any and all of your questions relating to our own personal performance protocols, our research and backgrounds as biohackers and scientists and business people to, you know, what's going on at Human? You know, what products are we working on? What R&D are we working on? What customers? What are the feedback from the Keto Nester? Happy to address any and all questions. So shoot us an email at podcast@human.com. And we'll, once we have a big bank of questions, we'll do a special episode. As always, please subscribe for future episodes of the Human Enhancement Podcast. Give us a five-star review on iTunes and send a screenshot to podcast.human.com and we'll send you a free Sprint Mini, our acute focus nootropic. Thanks so much and see you next time.